And welcome to another edition of Two Steps Ahead Podcast. Two Steps Ahead Podcast encouraging you to take your passion, make it happen, let yourself be great. I'm Son Edom and welcome to another edition of the show. And coming up on the show, we're going to take a look at a couple of things, have a discussion about a couple of topics that I think uh, could be interesting, might ruffle a few feathers in the meantime, but um, nonetheless, it should be fun. Going to talk about, uh, first off, uh, John Stewart had some comments about the National Anthem, so we'll review those and go over that. Also, we lost a couple of uh, iconic actors, and so we'll discuss a little bit of that, pay a little tribute to those that we lost that had a major impact on a lot of our lives, I would imagine, from the uh, entertainment perspective, and we'll delve into that a little bit. But what I want to do is I want to start off and talk about something that I saw online. Now, whenever something pops up online, especially on social media, I don't really take it as 100% accurate to start. I may look at it. I may read the story, for example. And so what I saw was a story about a couple that purchased a blender. The blender arrives Apparently, they set the blender down momentarily on the floor to maybe make some adjustments. The box, it's still boxed in the uh, box that it came in, so they haven't opened it yet. But they set it down for a moment, and then just like that, one of their cats, one of three, jumps on top of the box. And so they let the cat sit there. Figured they'll go back to the blender later. Well, apparently, as the story goes... The cats would take turns rotating and sit on top of the box, thus not allowing the people, the humans that purchased it to get the blender because it would disrupt the cats. So the cats would sit there, and I guess this went on for a period of time, a lengthy period of time, maybe a couple weeks even, and the cats would just rotate sitting on top of this box. Now, at first I thought, okay, As I'm reading the story, what comes to mind are two things. One, just move the cats. You're the human. Just move the cats out of the way and take the blender. But then I also thought, you know, there are people out there that would not infringe upon the rights of the cat to sit on that box. And they would forego the blender for the cats to sit on the box. And so as I continue reading, it turns out that this couple has the smarts, I guess you can say, to realize that, yes, they could move the cat or the cats if they wanted to actually get into it, but they thought it was amusing, and so they wanted to play it out, and so it went for a period of a couple weeks, and then it went from there. But got me thinking, you know, in society today, with all the issues that we have going on, people do put a lot of value on their pets, on animals in general, And do we do it to an extent that it goes beyond what is required? What do I mean by that? So there was a a survey, and I heard about this survey years ago, and I'm sure you might have heard of it in some variation or another. But the question was asked, if your pet, your pet dog, let's say, was in a situation where, let's say, a bus was coming down the street in some peril, and you only had the choice to save one, either your pet dog or a stranger, a majority of people would 
pick their pet dog. And so the value of pet life has now superseded that of human life. And there's various research studies out there that have done this. I'm sure, like I've said, you've probably heard of this in some fashion or another. There was another study, and I don't want to rely on that study too much because I couldn't find a whole lot of information about their methodology. But it talked about how when they would pose this question, let's say, I think it started out as a French tourist and your pet, who would you save? And the pet was the predominant person or the predominant uh, object, let's say, that would be saved. And then they said, what about a stranger in your town? Not a foreign tourist, but maybe a stranger in your town. Would that make a difference? Well, stranger, maybe not. Maybe it picked up a couple extra votes, but the pet would still be saved and the human would be perished. And then as it started to add these scenarios, okay, now it's maybe your neighbor down the street that you don't really know, but you kind of know, you kind of see, kind of wave as you drive by, and start adding value as to the human life, as to how you know them, the relationship. What if it's your friend, your best friend? Then what would you do? And as they started to add kind of this value of the person that was going to be saved versus your pet being saved, it kind of changed a little bit, but there was still an overwhelmingly number of people that would save the pet over human life. And so when you take it to the streets, this is what you get. So if a bus was hurtling down the street and it was going to hit either a foreign tourist or one of your dogs and you could only save one, which would you save? My dog. (laughs) And you can only save one. Who do you save? I got to save my dog, Butterball. My dog. I got to save my dog. I'm sorry. (laughs) My dog. Either a foreign tourist or Molly. Who do you save? Molly. (laughs) What do you think the human would say? Well, they would be hit. What what country? My dog, obviously. French tourist. French tourist, yes, to Molly. Even though it's a human, but my dog's part of the family. See, the key point right there was at the end. My dog is part of the family, and that's what it's gotten to. Family has been extended to animals, pets. And I get that. That's not a bad thing. That's not wrong. But when you place value over human life, you get where we are in society today. I mean, a lot of people will call their animals fur babies. I read a story in preparing for this where a lady, her house was on fire. The fire department shows up. The lady, an elderly lady, got out of the house and was safe. But she kept saying that her babies were in the house. Her babies were in the house. And so the fire department The firemen, thinking that there's babies in the house, rush in to this burning house that's about to collapse because it's on fire, only to find out that her babies are three cats. Now, apparently they saved the cats, as the news story goes, but there was some emphasis put on the fact that it wasn't clarified to the fire department that the babies were cats. So... At what point then do you jeopardize other people, in this case firemen, firefighters, going into a burning building to try to save babies that turn out to be cats? Now, of course, if you can save the cats' lives, that's fine. I'm not against that. I'm not against saying, oh, we should not have cats and save cats and do away with dogs and all that. But at what point do you value human life over animal life? I mean, there's a lot of stories out there where people will in the name of 
animal rights will do bad things to people. You know, they'll go into these experimental places. And, you know, there's a big controversy about using animals to kind of experiment on when it comes to different types of vaccines or drugs or, you know, the medical profession research. You know, research is a big thing that utilizes laboratory rats, for example. And then at what point do you value animals? I mean, laboratory rats, are those okay? Do we get rid of the laboratory rats? And so we say, okay, they can be used, but we can't use uh, chimpanzees, for example. So at what point do we draw the line? And so two-thirds of Americans, on the average, when I was taking a look at all these different studies that were out there, two-thirds of Americans, on the average, would sit there and save their pet. Now, another poll suggested that 90% of people that do own, let's say, a cat or a dog, you know, some sort of domesticated animal, um, refer to them as a member of the family. Again, you go back to that fur baby. Do you have fur babies? They allow them to sleep in the bed. How many times have you heard stories or maybe seen it online where you've got the dog owner and the dog owner is going to go to sleep in the dog owner's bed, the human's bed, and it sleeps on this little sliver of a mattress and the dog has the rest of the king-size bed. And the, the human will sit there, the person will sit there and try to sleep on the sliver size of mattress and let the dog have the rest of it, and then complain about it. Move the dog. I'd have no qualms with moving the dog out of the way. Now, if it was a baby, they put him in the crib. Sometimes babies will sleep in the bed, and you can go on social media and see all those cute baby pictures. Oh, baby's going to bed um, because it's, you know, mom's time to sleep in the bed, or I need a peaceful night's sleep, or whatever the case may be. So the human, the baby, has a crib, and you will put the baby in the crib to get a good night's sleep, but you won't move the dog. I just find that fascinating. They dress them up. I think it was during Halloween. I think I read that the animal costume, especially like dogs, the Halloween costume business for pets became like a billion-dollar industry or multi-million-dollar industry in the last couple of years because people go out and get these costumes for the pets. Again, no problem with that. But at what point do we start to draw the line with valuing humans versus valuing animals and pets you know i mean thinking about the non-human which is the pet or the animal and giving it humanistic qualities you know, in california there's a um, a yearly outbreak of wildfires unfortunately and every year animals are involved you know animals have to flee the fire and humans because we have a natural disposition towards compassion we might see wildlife and try to rescue wildlife one story in particular that hit the news was i guess it was like a rabbit or something there's some baby rabbits or something on the side of the road and some people tried to uh, rescue the 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 baby bunnies or something you know from the fire that's fine but here's the situation the wildlife people you know the game and fish the fish and game people those that are in the know said you can't intervene because the animals have a way of protecting themselves the animals have a way of going someplace getting out of there now sometimes that's not always the case but when we intervene sometimes in that wildlife we intervene and it only causes matters to get worse even though we have great intentions how many times is it you know you can't touch a a baby whatever because it might have human scent and the mom 
neglects it. You know, that's something that's out there that people believe, but then others will intervene. But we got to remember that animals have instinct too. They know what to do in those situations. But see, so there's some times where we sit there and we will put more emphasis on saving the pet, saving the animal than we will saving the human. And we'll do that in the name of veganism. Get some radical people out there doing some radical things, causing injury to people to save the animals. There was another montage that I was going to play, but this montage was a lot better. But it was talking about how one, they asked a girl about that, would you save the human or the animal? And she said she would save the human only because it would give that human an opportunity to go save more animals. So it wasn't even valuing the human life. It was valuing animal life, and you would save the human so the human could go save more lives. So how have we gotten this far? Where have we come to? How has it gotten to the point when humans have become devalued or have the equal value of animals? Our secular post-Judeo-Christian society has rendered human beings less significant than at any time in Western history. First, the secular denial that human beings are created in God's image has led to humans increasingly being equated with animals. That's why, over the course of 30 years of asking high school and college students if they would first try to save their dog or a stranger, two-thirds have always voted against the person. They either don't know what they would do, or they actually vote for the dog. And many adults now vote similarly. Why? There are two reasons. One is that, with the denial of the authority of higher values, such as religious teachings, people increasingly make moral decisions on the basis of how they feel. And since just about everybody feels more for their dog than for a stranger, many people simply choose the dog. The other reason is that once you get rid of Judeo-Christian values, there's no reason for elevating human worth over that of an animal. So that could be one possibility as to why we have arrived to where we're at. I mean, think about it. When we devalue humans, we look at them less. Our feelings towards other things increase, like maybe our pet. But when we start to devalue human life, and we look at them as non-human objects. There's a new, uh, numerous examples in history where this has taken place. I mean, think of the Holocaust. Six million Jews being slaughtered by the Nazi regime in those concentration camps. Think about uh, other genocides that have gone on. How many, how many times do we hear about genocides going on, let's say, in the continent of Africa, where one sect or one group of people, one tribe, one religious belief. They think they're superior over the others, so they go in and they slaughter them. I mean, the Chinese, they have all those uh, Uyghur people that they've rounded up and put in concentration camps. They devalue that human life. Well, what about the unborn baby? Millions and millions and millions of abortions are done worldwide every year. And people equate that with abortion rights and every time you talk to them about abortion rights, they talk about the baby being a non-human. They devalue that. And they value the right to choose over the value of life. What about political things such as Abu Dhabi, the, 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 the jail? Remember back during the uh, Gulf War? 
and the U.S. soldiers were dehuman, uh, dehumanizing the prisoners. They devalued life. What about things closer to home, like sex trafficking? Turning young women, maybe young boys, whoever's being sex trafficked, into an object, into a dollar value, and not a person. What about your neighbor that you fight with? Or what about the homeless guy or the homeless woman that you drive by all the time? Some issues are more complex. We've always said on this show that there's not one size solution that fits all problems. But we can start with us. We can start with the way we handle things and the way we do things. We might not always give money to the person panhandling, but maybe we give them a smile, a hi. Maybe we value that human life. And we acknowledge that it's a person, not something disgusting. If you're in Los Angeles, you do have to be careful out on the streets if you're out and about because I just read the other day that uh, Union Station, which is the train station in Los Angeles, there was a stabbing. There's been tourists in Hollywood that have approached kind of these homeless people and they've had stabbings. So you have to be careful and protect yourself. So not every case, like I said, you're going to sit there and try to help. But you don't have to devalue that person as less than human. You can still, still see the humanistic qualities in them, their spirit, their soul. They just might be in a different place, a place that needs professional help that's beyond what we can give them. And so we have to protect ourselves. We might look at that neighbor that we don't like because we have a fence line issue with them. And we want to get back at them. Politicians, politicians are huge at not looking at the value of human life. They just look at the value of their pocketbook, how much they're making. And like I mentioned earlier, what about the radicalism in the name of saving a life, an animal life? We're going to take the lives of humans or we're going to do something. I remember a story one time, actually two stories. The first one, I tried to find the audio for it because I thought it'd be really funny to play, but I couldn't. It was a news story. There was a news reporter on location at a grocery store. And they were protesting, I guess. Oh, no, I take it back. They weren't protesting the grocery store. They were at a, uh, like a, a meat processing plant where you kill the animals and make the meat. And they were protesting it. And they asked the lady why they were protesting. And she said, because cruelty to animals, you know, we don't want. And so that's fine. But then they said, okay, where, where, do people, should, where should people get their, their food, like their chicken, their meat, and stuff like that? And she looked at the reporter with the straightest of face, and said, people should go to the grocery store and get their food. Completely oblivious to how the food gets to the grocery store, but again. Or how about this story? Back in 2016, maybe you remember this, in Cincinnati, at the Cincinnati Zoo, a little boy fell into the gorilla pen, and the gorilla, a 17-year-old silverback, which is kind of a rare type of gorilla, might even be an endangered species, went by the name of Harambi. Snatched the boy, kind of dragged him across the pen, then kind of stood over the young boy. Now, there was a debate as to whether or not the gorilla was protecting the boy or going to squash the boy. So the zookeeper and the people that make those decisions decided that Harambi had to go down in the name of protecting the young boy, valuing human life over the animal life. And a lot of people are outraged. Some said, why don't you just use a tranquilizer? Sounds reasonable. But apparently a tranquilizer would take about 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes to work. And, and within that 10, 15 minutes, the boy could get squashed. And so Harambi, unfortunately, had to be put down 
to save the life of a boy, but all the animal rights activists became outraged over it. And I get that. I understand that. But again, why or how, I guess is the question, did we get to the point where we value human life or we take the value of human life, compare it to the value of animal life, and we choose animal life as more precious? Now, you can go on and on with all kinds of scenarios, all kinds of craziness out there, and people do that. You know, everyone gets crazy to their end to try to prove their point. But when it comes down to it, would you save your pet or complete stranger if you had to save one person? What if it was a friend of yours versus your pet? Who would you save? Does that change the value of that equation? Or are you going to continue to save your pet like the people in the audio that we played? You know, when it comes down to it, animals and pets, they do deserve to be treated with respect. I mean, after all, if you want to go back to what Dennis Prager was saying in the clip about human life, having dominion over the planet, we need to take care of it. We need to take care of the animals. We don't need to needlessly waste our time destroying the very thing that we live on. We need to take care of it. You know, how many times do you look at a TV show and you see things like maybe hoarders or shows like that and you cringe because you see the people living and dwelling in a place that's disgusting so sure we want to take care of the planet sure we want to take care of the animals it's okay to have pets it's okay to treat pets i guess if you want as a fur baby or as a member of the family but at what point does it become an obsession that it takes away from the very human value and you're going to start putting value on animals over humans i guess it's a question you have to ask yourself For me, I would pick the human life. As sad as that may be to some of you, I would pick human life because I value human life over animal life. I would shoot the gorilla to save the boy. It's an unfortunate situation. You can argue all kinds of things. How did the boy fall in the pen? Was the pen set up properly? Was there safety measures? What were the parents doing? So yeah, there's a lot of responsibility that went into that whole thing or lack of responsibility that went into that scenario. But I think ultimately the decision that was made was the correct one. You want to save human life. And anytime you have a chance to save human life. I mean, it's fascinating. Like, just take a look at this whole mass thing that we've been going on and the vaccines and stuff. How people in the name of saving people want to do away with people. You need to get the vaccine because you need to save lives. Or you're unvaccinated, I hate you, you should die. Hope you get COVID and die. (laughs) What are we talking about, people? We need to make sure that we are having the proper perspective on things. And until we do, there's going to be a lot of issues out there that we can't handle. And there's going to be a lot of issues out there that's going to continue to cause strife and division. Have your pet. Call them your fur baby. Dress them up for Halloween. Let them sleep on a king-size bed. You sleep on the, the little sliver of mattress that the dog gets you. Let your cat sit on top of a blender box forever. That's fine. But if it comes down to it, do you value your pet over someone else's life and that's something that you will have to decide so recently john stewart came out and he said that playing the national anthem before sporting events is a weird tradition is it maybe here's what he had to say about the matter you know i've always thought about when when kaepernick took the knee and, and the whole thing was like you got to stand for the anthem but like why is that that when the anthem comes on you only have to stand 
if you're there, but the transitive principle through the television, if it's right. through the television, you can do whatever the f you want. If you're yeah. at the stadium, you must, there's like a whole regimen that you have to go yeah. through. So that's what John Stewart had to say. And yeah, maybe he has some validity. I don't know. But it comes down to it is the fact that if you're at home and the national anthem plays, you could stand if you wanted to. There are some customs and traditions, like if you're actually in the field of play, the arena, the stadium, and the national anthem plays, that's when you're supposed to stand at attention. If you're outside of it, we can't see the flag. Basically, it comes down to seeing the flag, from what I understand. But again, everybody has different traditions. A lot of people I know in, in arenas that I've gone to, when you're outside in the concourse and the national anthem plays, stops, stands at attention or gives respect to the national anthem. There's some people at home that will stop because to some people, the national anthem means more than it does to other people. We talk about value of human life, the value of that flag. If you fought for that flag, if you bled on foreign shores for that flag to give people the right, like John Stewart, to say what he said, that flag is going to mean something. Do you think the, the flag at Iwo Jima meant something to those soldiers that put it up there? You think the flag for people that fought on foreign shores across the world over the years, you think that flag means something to them? But then for the rest of us, it's just something that we do. I mean, I don't even think we do the Pledge of Allegiance. I know there's some school districts and some states that do the Pledge of Allegiance every day. I think that's pretty cool. Other places, they don't for whatever reason. But what's the problem with it, John Stewart? Why is it weird? Do you know the history as to how it started? Is it causing anybody harm? Sure, we had the whole uh, Colin Kaepernick thing, taking a knee. But what does playing the national anthem, what harm does it cause? And again, it goes back to the history. So do you know the history of the Star Spangled Banner, which has become the national anthem? If not, let's take a little trip down memory lane, a little stroll through history class and find out the history of the Star-Spangled Banner. The Star-Spangled Banner is the national anthem of the United States of America. This familiar song has a long and interesting history dating back more than 200 years to September of 1814. The new United States of America, barely more than 20 years old, was at war once more with Great Britain in a war called simply the War of 1812. War had been raging for more than a year and a half when a young American lawyer named Francis Scott Key was sent to a British ship, the HMS Minden, to negotiate the release of some American prisoners. The negotiations took a long time, and because Key had heard the British planning an attack on Baltimore, Maryland, they wouldn't let him go until after the battle. On September 13, 1814, the British attacked Fort McHenry, as Francis Scott Key watched anxiously from a ship a few miles away. The battle was so fierce that Key was worried that the British would win. As the sun set, the sky turned red, giving a last glimpse of the American flag as the battle continued into the darkness. The fight raged on all through the rainy night, but once the rocket's red glare and bombs bursting in air stopped, Francis Scott Key could no longer see which flag was flying above the fort. 
it wasn't until morning as the early light of dawn revealed the aftermath that he could see that the American flag still flew, meaning that they had not been defeated. Key was so inspired that the next day he wrote a poem on the back of a letter he had in his pocket, and on September 16th, he was released in Baltimore, where he completed his poem. It was originally titled, Defense of Fort McHenry, and was printed in newspapers from Georgia to New Hampshire. The poem was set to music, and various versions became popular, but it wasn't until 1889 that the song was first adopted for official use by the Navy. In 1916, President Woodrow Wilson ordered that the Star-Spangled Banner should be played at military occasions, and President Herbert Hoover signed the bill that officially adopted it as the national anthem on March 4, 1931. So there's a little bit of history behind the Star-Spangled Banner, which became the national anthem in 1931. So you have Francis Scott Key, lawyer, and he's going to go negotiate the release of prisoners during the American Revolution. Well, he finds, about some, finds out about some plans about the British going to attack Baltimore. They don't let him go. So he's stuck. So basically what it is, it's a poem about what he saw and witnessed in a particular event in history, an important event in history. And so he writes the poem. And it was eventually, I think, put to music to uh, the tune of like a traditional English drinking song before it eventually became what it is today as we know it. And so the history behind it is pretty fascinating if you think about it. And it's actually uh, four verses. We only know the first one, but there's four verses to it, so you can check it out if you want, do your own research and look at it. But that's the history of the National Anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. 1916 actually the 1800s, then 1916, in more of a modern history. It was going to be used as a a song that's going to be played at military events. And then in 1931 became the official national anthem. So how did it start in sports? So how did we start playing the national anthem during sporting events? Funny you should ask, let me tell you. So as it goes, as the story goes... It was first used in sports during the seventh inning stretch of Game 1 of the 1918 World Series. The band erupted into the Star-Spangled Banner. It was the Cubs and the Red Sox. And so when the National Anthem came on, the players for both the Cubs and the Red Sox faced the center field flag and stood at attention. The crowd, already on their feet, began to sing along and applauded at the end of the song. Now, given this positive reaction, the band played the song during the next two games. And when the series moved from Chicago to Boston, the Red Sox owner brought in a band and had that song played before the start of each of the remaining contests during the World Series. And then after the war, the song was made the national anthem by a congressional resolution in 1931. And it continued to play at baseball games, First, it started out on special occasions, as the story goes, like opening day, uh, national holidays, the World Series, and then eventually it became an everyday thing. Well, why did it become an everyday thing? World War II. The national anthem became a staple at every game during World War II. Baseball games became a venue for large-scale displays of patriotism. 
and with technological advances in the public system, the public address system. This allowed the song to be played without a band. The Star Spangled Banner was played before games throughout the course of the war, and by the time the war was over, the pregame singing of the national anthem had become cemented as a baseball ritual, and it spread to other sports. So that's the genesis of how the national anthem got started in sports. Back in 1918, just the band randomly played it, and the players for the Cubs and the Red Sox stood at attention. The fans started to sing along and then applaud. See, there was a spirit of patriotism back then, World War I, World War II, going through some difficult times. And there was a sense of patriotism, and the national anthem represented that patriotism that people liked. And it was a hit. Now, if it wasn't successful, if it wasn't a hit, obviously people would have stopped playing it. But it became a big hit and became a part of baseball lore. And then it spread to other sports. And then becomes a huge controversy at some point. Becomes a point of emphasis for taking a knee. People call it racist, white supremacist. I would ask you this, knowing that history that I just played, and you can go do your own research. Here's a poem that a guy who went to free some prisoners from the British was basically taken captive himself for a while. Witnesses an event writes a poem about said event, and it gets published. A historical, a new story, really. He writes a poem, but it becomes a new story. An eyewitness account of kind of what went down at Fort McHenry. Then it goes from there, and it spreads. And it takes on a life of its own. It's used as a part of patriotism during World War II, World War I. It becomes a mainstay during baseball games because of that. And yet you listen to the excuses as to people saying why it is racist, why it is this, why we need to stop doing that. Where is that? Where is the racism in this? They start to point to the guy that wrote it, or they start to point to things that it represented. That's not what this was about originally. How you intend to use something is different from the origins of something. We've talked about it before in the show, the swastika from Nazi Germany, World War II, a sign, a symbol that now represents hate. Okay, originally, it started out prior to the Nazi use of that swastika as an Indian peace symbol. So Nazi Germany took something that was represented peace, and now it became a symbol for hatred. So the origins and the intent or the original intent are one thing, how people use it or another thing. You can look at the cross. A lot of people use the cross as a religious symbol. Other people have used it for other things. You can look at the Star of David. People use it for an imagery of one thing. Others have used it for others. Okay, there's a lot of things that the intent behind something and then how it is eventually used are two different things. But so when you're out there and you have these debates, the first thing you should know, or I should say the first thing you should do is educate yourself on the history of it. So why is this weird, John Stewart? It's fascinating. It's a part of American history, how this thing started. And so, yeah, so people today, you got people from all different countries coming over here. You got a lot of immigrants coming over here. So maybe they don't care about the national anthem because it's not their country. It's not their country of origin. Maybe they haven't adopted American patriotism yet. And so they don't care. There's arguments about other countries that don't play it, like Premier League soccer and other countries don't play it. Well, they do at the uh, Olympics. When someone wins the gold medal, they're playing the national anthem. But so what? Nobody else is doing it. Doesn't that make America that much more unique and special? Because we're not doing everything the rest of the world is doing. 
See, I find it okay that we play it. I think what's more important is that we remember not only the history. I mean, think about all the wars that have gone on, World War I, World War II. That's the main point of this uh, story for the national anthem. But think about the American Revolution. And then you have the Civil War in there. And then you have the Korean War. And then you have Vietnam. And then you have 20 years or whatever it is of Gulf War, Afghanistan. People have fought, bled, and died under the cover of that flag so that someone like John Stewart can sit there and have the freedom to say what he wants about the flag. I mean, the Olympics are taking place in China shortly, and everybody is recommending that the athletes use burner phones. There's concern about the security and safety of athletes going to China because of things that you might say, things that you might take part in. That's not freedom. Look at all the other countries where there's no freedom to say and do some of the things that people say and do. The people that say and do things that say the, the flag is racist, it represents white supremacy, try saying something like that in China and see what happens to you. Not very good. And so when you take a look at this thing, whatever your opinion is, whatever you think of playing the national anthem before a sporting event, I would first off ask yourself where you're at because depending on where you are in this country, it's going to change your perception on things. If you're in the heart of America, the heartland of America, mostly between the Appalachians and the Rockies, national anthem is pretty prominent. American patriotism exists pretty prominently. On the coasts, not so much. Living in LA, don't see it too much. See it, you know, the Dodger games and Kings games and stuff like that. But at the local levels, not so much. It's still there, but it's not as rampant as other places. What's your background? What's your nationality? Where do you come from? That might influence. Who do you listen to? Who are the people that are feeding you information? Is that affecting how you think towards it? Because that's the big thing. The big thing is a lot of people don't know about something. They're just told, and we know from social media, doing shows on social media, that misinformation spreads six times faster via Twitter than any place else. And I'm sure with the rise of TikTok and places like that, a lot of information, misinformation getting thrown out there. So who are you going to listen to? So as you sit there and you go and listen to the national anthem being played and you hear people talk about it and you hear people have conversation about it, know the history Know the history of where it came from. Know what it was about and the evolution of how it came into play. And you might have a better understanding of what the national anthem means and represents to people that have fought, bled, and died for it so that you can say whatever you want about it and have freedom to do so. As we start the new year, unfortunately, there are a couple of people iconic actors that are no longer with us. Betty White being one of them. She passed away at the age of 99. She was the recipient of eight Emmy Awards in various categories, three American Comedy Awards, three Screen Actor Guild Awards, a Grammy. She has a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame, 
and was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame in 1995. She was on Match Game. used to watch Match Game on the uh, Game Show Network. She was on there for a while. Uh, Golden Girls might have been one of the areas that, or one of, the, her, one of her bodies of work, I guess you could say, that presented her to a younger generation and got a whole new group of people liking her and following her. Hot in Cleveland might have been another one. A movie like The Proposal with Sandra Bullock, Ryan Reynolds. So she's done a lot of iconic things, and she's been able to find things during different parts of her life that have introduced herself to a whole new realm of people. I think that's why she became so beloved. But Golden Girls was one that I guess a lot of uh, people really started to kind of recognize her, like a new generation of people. And so I thought it'd be fun to play maybe some of the greatest or the better moments of Betty White on Golden Girls. And she was uh, Rose on Golden Girls. Someone was actually able to deceive me once. (laughs) Do tell, Rose. St. Olaf's most famous OBMAG. What's that? Obstetrician magician. The amazing Shapiro. He delivered Bridget. But it was so confusing. It's a girl. Now it's a dove. Now it's a glass of milk. I don't know how he got her in that deck of cards. But there she was, right after the King of Hearts. Is this your baby? Miles is my dancing partner at the ballroom. Oh, yes, and tonight, we were the king and queen of the rumba. (laughs) Olé. (laughs) I made dessert. Damn. (laughs) What'd you say, Blanche? Yo, myself, yo. Rose, is this another one of those Scandinavian Viking concoctions? Yes. It's called Gnurkenfurten cake. It's an ancient recipe, but I Americanized it. Yeah, so one might say you brought Gnurkenfurten into the 80s? Yes, but I'm not one to blow my own Gnurkenfurten. I can't even reach mine. I knew I never should have gotten involved in this mother-daughter pageant. I just wish I'd known how to say no to it. I know what you mean. I should have said no to the Miss St. Olaf beauty pageant. It was 1951. That was the first year they let humans enter, too. I was way ahead after the evening gown and log rolling competition. People don't realize how hard it is to roll a log when you're wearing an evening gown. is I lost out on the intelligence quiz. Rose, hand me that newspaper. No, you're going to hit me with it. No, I won't. You promise? I promise. So a little taste of Betty White there and the Golden Girls age and how different from the 80s to today, people in their 50s, 55, 60 retirement, doing things differently than what the Golden Girls did. But uh, Betty White, an icon, 99, spanning the years, and she was always humble. That was the other thing that we can learn from her is, first, she was talented, 
but she was humble. Anytime she accepted an award or anytime someone asked her about her accomplishments, you know, she was always kind of a humble person. And I think we've lost that today. A lot of people in this narcissistic world, me first, me first, but she was putting other people first. You know, she was out there helping the animals. We talked about animals earlier and the value of animal life. Betty White was somebody that loved animals. She said she'd be a zookeeper or maybe working with animals if she wasn't an actress. And so it's okay to love those animals. It's okay to love Betty White. It's okay to mix the two. But when you look at at what she's accomplished and what the impact she's had on a lot of people, it's pretty amazing. Something that we might be able to take from her is that, that we can be humble in our successes. We can be kind to others. We can be kind to animals. We can help others. You know, the work that she's done in charity and things like that uh, has done a, a wealth of good for a lot of people. And so to recognize her dying short of her 100th birthday, a lot of people were sad about that. But she lived a long life and benefited a lot of people, helped out a lot of people. And I think it's something that uh, we can all learn from. We might not achieve her accolades in the public eye, but in our communities, in our neighborhoods, the people around us, we could probably get our stars on their walk of fames or be inducted into those persons' individual hall of fames just by the way we treat them, by the way we value them, by the way we look at them and give them worth and do what we can to impact their lives for the benefit, take that greatness within us and bring it out and raise the standard so that others around us then raise the standard. The other person that uh, we lost was Bob Saget. He was uh, 65, was uh, probably best known for the, the role of Danny Tanner on Full House. He was also the host of America's Funniest Home Videos and did comedy, a lot of comedy. And he was in some other movies like Half-Baked and stuff like that, but probably best known for his role as Danny Tanner in Full House and then Fuller House and, and so on. But uh, here's... A clip that I want to play that pretty much embodies what Danny Tanner was about and the reason why the character became so real to people. You know, TV dad became one of the greatest TV dads. A lot of people looked up to Danny Tanner, even though a fictitious character, but because I think it was the sincerity behind Bob Saget that he brought. It was like Bob Saget believed in the things that he was sharing with his TV daughters on the show. And this clip is one in particular. DJ, we have to talk. You don't understand. I don't like the way I look. I want to look like these models. Why? Because they're beautiful. Well, so are you. Oh, yeah? Well, show me one girl in here with this round face and these Charlie Brown cheeks. Honey. People come in all different shapes and sizes. Everybody wishes they could change something about themselves. Heck, when I was a kid, I wished I could have been more like that guy on The Incredible Hulk. You want to be a big green monster with muscles? No, not him, the other guy, the guy that turned into the Hulk. <sighs> he was just nice and average. He wasn't too tall, wasn't too skinny. He didn't stick out like I thought I did. Then I realized he didn't have it so easy either. Every time he lost his temper, he had to buy a new shirt. Well, you mean 
made me smile, but there's still no way I'm wearing a bathing suit in front of my friends. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Why do you like your friends? Because they're nice and we have fun together and we do stuff for each other. Not because they all look like models. No. Maybe that's because deep down inside you know that how a person looks on the outside isn't nearly as important as who they are on the inside. Right? Right. A life lesson that we can all learn. And because of his sincerity, and because I really believe he meant those type of things that he was saying on the show, it came across and a lot of people would listen and take those lessons becoming one of the all-time greatest TV dads. I think back over some of the shows and TV dads I watched. Now, fortunately for me, and it's a topic we're going to get into in another episode, but fatherhood and dads. Fortunately, I had a great dad that was in my life the entire time. He was there coaching baseball. He worked hard, taught me a lot of uh, values, a lot of ethics. I did a show with him recently about his time in Vietnam, and it's a couple episodes back. You can go to RadioWarp.com, and you can see and listen to the episode. Uh, you can learn a lot from, from that episode, too. But some of the TV dads, you think about it, there's a lot of people out there that did not have fathers growing up, and they would have TV, and they would watch television shows. And the TV dads kind of, I don't want to say became surrogate dads, but a lot of people look to these um, TV dads for influence. And I think back to some of the, the ones growing up, you had like Charles Ingalls from Little House on the Prairie. I know some of you might not know what that is, but uh, it was portrayed by Michael Landon. And again, all these fathers were teaching life lessons about honesty, integrity, being a good person, doing the right thing, raising the standard, bringing out your inner greatness, helping others. You know, Charles Ingalls, Little House on the Prairie was probably one of the first TV shows that I watched. I read the books and then started watching the show. You think about Mike Brady from the Brady Bunch, more of a comedic show, but still the values, the lessons that were being taught through that comedy we're still of those honesty, integrity, doing the right thing. You think of uh, Philip Drummond from Different Strokes. You know, Conrad Bain portraying Philip Drummond. And the lessons that were taught and learned in there. And at the time, it was probably pretty controversial. You had a, a white father adopting two black kids. And a lot of lessons to be learned. If you've never seen the show, look for it. Find it. Because it's a, it's a funny show. Gary Coleman and... Um, Todd Bridges, Dana Plato. And so, um, again, just another dad that was out there growing up that people would watch. What about Howard Cunningham from Happy Days, portrayed by Tom Bosley? Or even go way back to the black and white days of TV, Andy Taylor from The Andy Griffith Show, portrayed by Andy Griffith. You know, so there's a lot of dads out there on TV, and there's some more modern ones too, I'm sure. I just don't watch a lot of TV anymore. Um, but they taught the lessons of life. Now we get people like Homer Simpson and Al Bundy. Probably not the most, uh, or probably not the best example of parenthood, fatherhood. But I know it's comedy. I know it's TV. But again, the importance of fathers is a big one. Having an absent father can cause all kinds of issues for people growing up. And again, we're going to delve into it a little bit more in another episode. But in case you don't notice or you don't realize the impact. I found this uh, poem that was put out there that kind of describes exactly what it's like 
for some of these kids growing up without a father. When's the last time you heard a poem about an absent father? And if you can recall the answer to that question easily, well, that's the problem. That's why many of us ran into the warm arms of poetry. Why many of us found life within the boundaries of a page, of a space, of a blank array to create the man we wanted to know. Our storytelling started while we were old, but young in flesh. Young at heart, curious about why we were left. They could have been supermans or presidents, artists or veterans, anything to distract us from what the ugly truth could be that maybe he just didn't want me. So we wrote and we wrote until lies became truths and planks of wood became boats, became the tool that kept us afloat to survive within this beautiful lie to protect us from the storms that our mothers hated to hide, pulling back the wool over our eyes, trying to show us that this is simply life. And this is not how you are defined. Instead, we took that advice and created something from nothing. Because a child with no father is nothing but a refugee searching for a place to call home. And the moment that your father is absent is the moment that you have no place to belong. We have no place to belong. We are walking halves with missing cultures. We are thirsty vultures trying to finish the other side without peeking before it's finished, though. And by the time we have grown into adults, we look like Picassos. Two faces with different perspectives. The face-forward, confident detective of identity. The other looking to the side, trying to figure out why me. The color choice especially. Because we have been made up of colored oil that hasn't reached its full term. Term oil that churns and churns until gray is a palette that breeds. Because although we are full with so much vibrancy, it's really the gray that matters underneath. Because that gray resembles uncertainty and that goes back to he, to him, to the man we call father to the one responsible for bringing us into this place. And his responsibility is something that he chose to erase, which is why we erase lines and rhymes that don't fit. We are our fathers. We are using their gift to create something beautiful, share it with the world, and then exit. Pretty powerful. Kids without fathers. Fathers, do you value your kids? Do you value their mother? Again, it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning of the show. We compared it to pets, kind of in a tongue-in-cheek conversation. But what happens when we start to get into something more serious like this? Fathers and kids, do you value your kids? Or do you value something else more that you leave? Mothers. Do you value your kids? It doesn't have to be just dads. Mom's there too. And you can see just from that example, that poem, that absent fathers, who I want to direct this conversation right now to, there's a big impact, a big void that's left if you're not in your kid's life. And so it's time that we step up. And take that responsibility back and value 
the life of our kids. Value the life of the young ones. If you don't have kids, maybe you value the life of somebody and be a mentor, be a big brother. But something to think about. Because without that father figure in a child's life, the result is what you heard from that poem. And as we go, I want to leave you with one minute of motivation. The biggest poison in us is regret. I think there are a lot of people that have dreams and aspirations of things that they always wanted to do, but it wasn't the right time, or they didn't have enough money, or they didn't have enough experience. It's never the right time. You're never going to have the right experience. And all of a sudden, you wake up and you're 70. And you're like, God, I wish I could have done it. It's what you don't do that screws with you later on. I get one shot at this life. This is it. And I don't want to go through life being the 80% version of me. I don't want to look back and be like 77 and be like, I didn't do that. There's so much I want to do, and I love life so much. I don't want to miss it. Do you love life so much you don't want to miss it? Live with no regrets. Take your passion. Make it happen. Let yourself be great. Well, maybe it's time you start doing that. This is Two Steps Ahead Podcast, encouraging you to take that passion, make it happen. Let yourself be great. Bring out that inner greatness in you. Raise the standards so that you can inspire others and be the example that others see in you so that they raise their standard. They bring out their greatness, and then it perpetuates, becomes addictive. And more and more people want to do it, be in the in crowd. And the next thing you know, we're valuing human life. We're valuing our kids. We're valuing, uh, valuing properly the pets and animals that we have. And we work together to have a harmonious world that we live in so we can make things better for everybody. You can find us on uh, Instagram. The show page is at Two Steps Ahead Podcast, T-W-O, Two Steps Ahead Podcast. And then my personal page is at Edem Rocks, E-I-D-E-M-R-O-C-K-S. You can also uh, be old school and email the show, Two Steps Ahead Podcast at gmail.com. If you go to the Instagram pages, there's a, a link in the bio that brings you to a lot of things like the swag shop where you can get cool uh, merchandise for the show. It also takes you to radiowarp.com, radio W-A-R-P, radiowarp.com, which is where you can find previous shows, which you can find and listen to, either watch via video or listen via audio to previous shows. You can go to our YouTube page, subscribe to our YouTube page, our SoundCloud page, and never miss a show. You can download uh, download the audio from our SoundCloud and take it with you. We're also um, anywhere you listen to podcasts. So if you have a favorite platform like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, etc., we're there. Or you can just Google uh, TWO, Two Steps Ahead Podcast, and we show up. But RadioWarp.com is the best place to go to find out about all things Two Steps Ahead Podcast. That's Radio warp.com hey thanks for being with us we appreciate it do tell a friend if you think this would benefit somebody um, pass it along we'd greatly appreciate it and until next time two steps ahead podcast encouraging you to take your passion make it happen and let yourself be great